Welcome to New Chip Accelerate, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the New Chip Accelerator. I'm your host, Jonah Pfeiffer. From investing to building a company culture, this podcast strives to shine a light on the many unknowns that entrepreneurs face on a daily basis. Through talks with key personalities, Accelerate will teach you how to approach your investors, companies, customers, and roles with a fresh perspective. Today, we're talking intellectual property and the law. These are big topics for founders to wrap their heads around, so we hope that these talks can help. First, we have this segment from New Chip's online demo week that happened this past November. You'll be hearing excerpts from Startups and the Law, What You Need to Know, a panel hosted by New Chip Venture Fellow and Startup Advisor Jonathan Boyarski. His guests were David Gamble, a partner at Gunderson Detmer, Kevin Hyatt, a corporate and transactional attorney at the Hyatt Law Firm, and Samar Shah, an IP lawyer at Shah IP Law. Let's get right into it. Good morning or afternoon, everyone. My name is Jonathan Boyarski. I'm a venture fellow here at New Chip, which is an online accelerator that helps startups grow and fundraise. Uh, today, I'm joined by three very interesting guests as we talk about what startups need to know when it comes to the law. It's often enigmatic and confusing, but hopefully these three lawyers will kind of help us navigate the ins and outs and really figure it out. So without further ado, let's get started. Uh, I'm first joined by Samar Shah. He's a patent attorney who represents startups and establishing uh, tech companies and kind of helping them get their IP figured out early on. IP is always a, an interesting thing for startup. When do I file? Do I need to file? Um, there's a lot of questions there. Samar, thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm happy to. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, IP is an interesting and often arcane subject, especially for startups. So I'm happy to to you know talk about that and hopefully shed some light into it. I'll just give you a quick background on myself. Um, you know, I started my career out in Silicon Valley. Uh, I worked for a, a tech-focused firm uh, called Fenwick and West. I did a lot of patent prosecution there. I represented Facebook and Google and Twitter and GoPro on a lot of their early patents. Um, and then I you know, moved to a New York-based firm uh, called Paul Hastings, where I did a lot of patent litigation work, uh, high-stakes patent litigation work for companies like AT&T and BlackBerry um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and now, uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, we moved, my wife and I, we moved to San Antonio, Texas. Uh, and, you know, I represent a lot of uh, enterprise clients out in California still, and also a growing number of startups here in Texas. So it's been a interesting journey and I've, you know, uh, helped help clients navigate through uh, issues from being a bootstrap startup to venture back startup to, um, you know, late stage and, um, you know, public companies. So I'm happy to kind of uh, provide some guidance or at least some uh, interesting anecdotes about what those experiences are like. Awesome, Samar. Thanks for joining us. Um, I, I think one thing that's really interesting in this discussion that really kind of pervades not only the IP side, but just the legal side in general, which is that startups are often cash poor. And so then it becomes a strategic question of, you know, what is really valuable? And I think that that's kind of a more nuanced discussion in terms of does your startup really need IP? And it will really kind of be company specific, but your expertise is uh, great and we're, we're really happy to have you. Um, you. Next, we're joined by Kevin Hyatt. Um, he started his uh, career in civil litigation, but kind of has quickly trans, uh, transferred over to more transactional stuff and startups and business. He's based out of Austin, Texas. We're really excited to have him, have him here. Kevin, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, 
Appreciate you having me as well. Um, yeah, I actually got started uh, my career after my undergrad was uh, my undergrad was in media arts, film, essentially, and then uh, I did a business management minor focused on entrepreneurship. Um, had my own recording studio to help pay for um, the bills and get me through college, and so I've got a little bit of entrepreneur's um, experience in that sense, but. Uh, my technology background, I had kind of had to be my own IT guy with doing all the sound for uh, music. And then I actually started doing sound for television and uh, kind of make a long story short. I got connected with a, a law firm partner in Irvine, California. Uh, I grew up in Southern California and he wanted some help with a his uh, home recording studio and I needed some extra work. So he saw my technical skills and said, you know, we could use some help with these, uh, these technical cases, working with technical experts and everything. And uh, so I realized quickly when I got there, there's a lot of people that didn't like technology in the law firm. I loved it. And I saw a lot of opportunities to improve uh, upon the technology they were using, help to like design new databases to, deal with uh, complex business litigation, uh, electronic uh, document discovery. And that kind of got me into the legal world. I loved the opportunity to work and represent different companies that in a variety of fields and industries. I loved learning and uh, that gave me that opportunity. So that's kind of how I got into law, decided to go to law school and, um, and then, you know, years later, I moved out here to Austin and litigation is less of a priority here, at least from my experience. There's a lot more of the technology startup companies and even the non-technology startup companies. There's, I, I work with a variety in, in energy, oil, gas, uh, manufacturing, and they had a lot of needs that that I was able to fill. So I just kind of, it kind of happened organically. And I started helping out some companies, uh, started out, whether it's a single person company or a lot of companies, primarily after the funding stages where I, where my expertise is, uh, a lot of times companies struggle to pay for attorneys when they haven't got their funding yet. And, uh, there's, there's a lot of firms around here that do a great job of investing in companies and making a little bit that burden a little bit lighter. Um, unfortunately, I'm not in that position, but I, I I work with a lot of different other law firms here in Austin, and uh, I just love the entrepreneur spirit, the startup. Um, I'm a wannabe in a way, you know. I have a small practice, but um, I, I just love people seeing people have an idea, build it into something that uh, you know impacts the world in in whatever way they can. So, yeah, that's kind of my background. That's awesome, Kevin. It's great to have you. I think that a lot of lawyers close to the entrepreneurial space still have that kind of classic legal risk aversion, but want to be closer to that excitement and <laughs> enabling entrepreneurs. So it, it's awesome to have you. And as you mentioned, um, I think that this panel is really interesting because you've got a tech background. I have an engineering degree and so do Samar and Dave as well, which in the law is often, you know, not very common. As Dave said beforehand, you know, lawyers don't even like math, let alone engineering. But I think the <laughs> perspective that engineers provide is a very calculated perspective. Um, I think that we kind of think about things more in terms of litigation costs. We think about, well, what's the likelihood of this going to trial? We think about in terms of 
what's the expected value and what's the cost to, you know, getting an IP or doing this filing. So I think that taking that into account is, uh, you know, really helpful when it comes to lawyers, because it, it gets closer to the entrepreneurial perspective of this is a, a game of calculated risks and law is just another calculated risk that we have to think about. Um, so thanks for joining us, Kevin. Last, we've got Dave Gamble, who was uh, formerly a partner at Brown Rudnick and at Wilmer Hale. He currently is a partner at Gunderson Detmer. He focuses on emerging companies, financing all the way from small, small companies up to those that are uh, private equity funded. Dave, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hey, thanks for having me, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. So uh, much in the way that uh, that Kevin finds himself every day helping companies, you know, do all manner of general counsel things. That, that's what I do on a daily basis. Um, just give you a little background on the firm I work at, Gunderson. We're about 300 attorneys. Uh, we do three things. Uh, we help venture funds uh, form their funds. We help venture capitalists invest in companies. And we do what I do primarily, which is act as outside general counsel uh, for companies. And so on a day-to-day basis, I'm helping companies from you know the two guys in the garage, start and form the entity to begin with to helping some of my larger clients, you know, do fairly significant acquisitions, do finance along the way and do all manner of strategic relationships. My background, um, I was a nuclear engineer prior to going to law school. I'm a glutton for punishment, um, which is how I ended up doing this for the last 23 years. But what I like about what I do is, you know, exactly as Kevin said, the, the entrepreneurial spirit is very infectious. As an engineer, I'm, I'm intellectually curious and I represent tend to represent companies in tech that are often doing hard tech. I, I represent a company called Commonwealth Fusion, which is trying to commercialize fusion energy. Uh, we've raised about $220 million for them so far since startup. And um, understanding the technology and being able to get in and dig in with the engineering team, understanding, and I'll be the first to admit that I don't truly understand what many of my companies do. You know, I, I get the basic physics, um, but you know, I don't understand at the level they do, but being able to speak their language and, you know, at least understand the physics is actually helpful. And when you're doing financings, it's amazing the number of attorneys you run into on the other side that can't, operate a basic spreadsheet or if they are operating a basic spreadsheet don't understand why they keep getting the wrong answer because they don't look under the covers at the math um, and like Samar I um, am actually a licensed patent attorney but unlike Samar I've only ever prosecuted one patent and I hope to keep it that way because that was just not something I was very good at. Yeah, no, th- Dave, thanks for joining us. Um, I think we really have a really interesting kind of group of experience here between your kind of medium to big law experience, Kevin kind of smaller firm, and then Samar on the IP side. Um, and, and, and you know, I think that the, that engineering degree really comes in because sometimes, and this is where the takeaway for the startups listening is more about finding an attorney that matches your company. So if you have an attorney who has that kind of technical background or works with a lot of technical companies, when you explain some sort of complex idea, they'll understand at least the sort of initial background information to determine whether or not you even need to file a patent on this, whether it's you know some sort of software company that's got a proprietary algorithm. Is that something that we patent or just trade secret? And so I think that your experience really matches well with those tech companies. Dave, thanks for joining us. Um, so let's- My pleasure. Let's go ahead and jump into sort of the first topics, which is 
what startups need to do versus what startups want to do. Um, as Kevin said, you know, he usually gets involved after there's been a financing. And once money's flowing, it makes a lot of sense to do, um, you know, some of those legal precautionary insurance kind of uh, filings and just, you know, compliance issues. So let's just open the floor and, you know, ask the question of like, what startups, must, what must they do when they get started? in terms of a legal, a legal component. Yeah, I'm happy to start because it's funny, you know, Kevin's out there, I think being a good business partner, all these folks, we, we try and do that. That's the thing that I like is to be the business partner. Uh, well, uh, because I'm at a little bit bigger firm, we have the opportunity, as Kevin was saying, to invest in some of our clients and that includes investing some of my time. So the part that I actually like the most about kind of the formation process is, is, is not even the legal part. I think the thing that before we could dive into like absolute legal, I think the, the most important thing for a startup to do is to have good communications among the founders. And I think a role that we as good business partners play is we can help them have communications about things that they don't know that they're supposed to be communicating about. And in setting up the company initially, you know, dividing the equity, talking about the expectations. Okay. Are we going to get this thing funded? How are we going to get it funded? If we ideally get it funded, what does that mean? When am I going to be happy? How much time and energy am I going to expect? What's success for me and my team? All of those things are so critically important. And I feel like people that start companies are so passionate about the problem that they're solving that they often don't talk about what solving that problem means and what a successful outcome means to them. And they just assume. And so you get down the path. And I'm sure, Kevin, you probably have plenty of experience with this. You, you jump in, they get just got financing and they're like, holy cow, what does that really mean to me? And what do I need to do now? So I think our first job, quite frankly, as lawyers and good business partners is to force people to have conversations that they may not want to slow down and have. And then there's a million, you know, little legal things that they need to do. But the, the point that I'd like to make first that that communication and to your point, Jonathan, about finding a lawyer that matches your style for your company, not only from a tech, do they get it, but also can I communicate with this person in a way that I can get trusted, valuable advice? And are they giving me the feedback as a business partner? Because tons of people can give you the legal answer. You know, we all went to law school. We can all look it up in a book. We can give you the legal answer risk adjusted kind of for your situation, background experience sort of thing is not something that that many people do. And so matching up and, and, and even people that do it really well, don't do it well for all communication styles. So you got to find somebody that matches. That's the first thing from a legal perspective, I think startups should do is find that legal partner that they can communicate with, that they can trust, that they trust their judgment with. So I think I think that's I've dominated the floor. <laughs> so I'll see my. <laughs> I think that's uh, a great point, and I think that lawyers really should be, especially in the startup and transactional world, should be first business advisors. Um, which is to say that we have this legal background, but the truth of the matter is there won't ever be any dispute resolution if there's no dispute. And so if all the founders are talking and figuring this out, and then you sort of you know codify that agreement with some sort of contract or you know, some sort of uh, founder equity grant, um, you know, 
then the expectations are laid out. And this is where I think the lawyer plays an important role of first saying, well, have you guys figured out what you're doing? And I think oftentimes, like, you're, you know, people get really excited and they get really gung ho, but they don't always take that step back. Um, Kevin, how have you sort of found that to be? Yeah, I, I was actually going to just piggyback on what David was saying, because the number one thing I would say is that whole partnership with the attorney, finding the right person or firm that fits with your personality and that you, the biggest thing I see is trust. Can they trust you? And that, that involves a lot of stuff that involves not only maybe knowledge in the area um, that, that your company is or whatever industry it may be, if it's the technology, uh, but also personality I I've found, and I won't get into details, just, you know, attorney client privilege and, and personal information, but I found that the psychological side of starting a company or growing a company, because a lot, again, where I, I sit, it's usually when they're, they're starting to really want to grow or are, are on the path, they're growing well. And when they're trying to make important decisions, I, I realize that the psychological component, their stress, anxiety, whether it's founder, uh, a single founder or multiple, that the dynamics between them and then the dynamics with their, if it's uh, manufacturing, the distributors or their, um, the people they have working under them, there's a lot of nuance to that. And when you talk about just general risk or um, the costs of doing business and everything, a lot of times that doesn't come into play. And trust is a huge thing that I've been able to see in what my clients have told me. And I think the reason why every client that I have is with me is because they trust me, not because even that I'm the most expert in the specific field that I'm working in, but I, I also can create or uh, use the relationships I already have to work with other firms when I'm not an expert in it because they trust me. They know I'm going to say we need to get uh, another firm to, to work on this. And uh, so, yeah, that trust is, yeah, uh, I think the biggest thing I've seen. Yeah. I, I think that that's a great point. And I kind of, I think it leads in uh, nicely to the next question, which is, all right, let's say the startup's doing well. Um, you know, they've raised a little bit of money, they've got a little bit of breathing room, they've got a little bit of runway, you know, then the lawyer becomes also very important. And this is where you start to think about, well, do I want to, you know, go with outside GC or maybe even get my own in-house attorney? Because now we're drafting partnership agreements. Now we're issuing, issuing employee socks and we're doing more raises. Um, and Kev, you said, Kevin, you said that your experience is kind of, uh, you know, in this phase after they get that financing. So do you want to talk about sort of the role of the attorney sort of when things are going well and as companies scale? It's uh, it's hard to do stuff when you don't have much of the facts. And the whole, I, I, I get a lot of, oh, this is a standard contract. We just want you to review a standard contract. I hear that all the time. <laughs> there's very, very few industries that I've worked in where there's a true standard contract. And that's generally from some government agency. Um, I think like for real estate, certain situations where um, there's standard form contracts, but in general, it's like standard contract for one company is standard for them. So they're going to have standard terms that benefit them and, uh, or, or companies that will come and say, Oh, it's just, can you just do a quick one page uh, contract about something, a quick one page master service agreement. It's like <laughs> sure. a, a master service agreement. I mean, they don't call it a master service agreement, but um, yeah, it's uh, so it's, it's a broad range of 
of um, experience that I have with how much they allow me to get involved. And again, that's a lot has to do with their budget. And then also they're busy as well. So sometimes I have to do stuff on my own. And, um, but yeah, it's just kind of a balancing act, but trying to get as much information as I can to understand what their needs are and whatever the product is, if it's a certain transaction with another company or licensing agreement or privacy policies. Yeah, make sure you're communicating well. Next up, we have an interview between Kyle Croyle, the new Chip VP of Startup Success, and Ian Garrett, a venture fellow at IdeaShip. This interview is part of NewChip's Q4 online demo day, which happened in September of 2020. Let's tune in as they talk all things intellectual property. Welcome, Ian. I appreciate you taking the time. I would love for you to give any additional detail on what you guys focus on, and in particular, the focus on IP and your processes around that. Thanks for the introduction, Kyle. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to get into the details. So. As you said, I work with IdeaShip, which is a padded equity fund. We provide padded capital for early stage technology startups. And our general approach is that early stage is the optimal time to turn foundational ideas into padded assets. And we take a collaborative approach, um, leveraging subject matter experts, padded attorneys, and our internal resources to, to essentially form a brain trust for our investees, depending on their specific technology field. And we take them through padded strategy to padded prosecution and to eventually getting granted padded assets that have real value that will impact their eventual exit value which is ultimately the goal of IP for a startup beyond protecting your innovations and ensuring that you don't lose your competitive advantage. Historically, intellectual property has played a huge role in successful startups exit values. And it's an area of focus that a lot of companies don't give a lot of thought to until it's too late. The way that the patent system works in the States and also abroad, um, there's a definite urgency to it. But early stage founders have have so many other things they're focusing on, product, marketing, raising money, that it's easy to let IP slip through the cracks. And yep. we what we really try to do is support early stage founders and provide expertise so that they can focus on, on everything else that they're working on and also make sure that they're having all their intellectual property needs correctly addressed. Absolutely. Yeah, perfectly said. And I think it's going to be really fun to kind of dive into your experience. And obviously, you work with a lot of different startups, hearing about, uh, you know, where where startups are successful and where they're not so successful. And so I know we're going to kind of tap into that uh, in a little bit. Um, but to, to get started, you know, you know, obviously, we at New Chip work with a lot of different startups uh, around all different types of industries. And, you know, they might not totally understand kind of the, you know, the importance of of intellectual property in the way that you guys see it and in building up that valuable patent portfolio. So, um, you know, we obviously think it's important for them to at least understand why this matters. Why is this something that companies should be actively thinking about? And as you just mentioned earlier on, not just waiting, you know, years, you know, down the line when suddenly it becomes uh, more top of mind, why they, why should they take a proactive approach in, in at least building a foundational knowledge around this kind of IP and patent uh, topic? 
Absolutely. So the first thing is intellectual property can really level the playing field for startups who, who have a high tech focus. What we see a lot is in these industries that are, that are fairly established is there are some really big padded players and the way that their padded portfolios are built out, it makes it difficult as a newcomer to really break into the space um, without, without violating patents and committing patent infringement. So it's really important if you want to break into a space that's competitive, you need to make sure that you're protecting the innovations that you believe will allow you to break into that space. So we always recommend people start thinking about it right out of the gate and beyond beyond the more big picture reasons behind that, there are some more tangible reasons for why it's important to get started early. In the United States, you have a one-year window from when you publicly disclose your innovation to when you can actually file an application on that innovation. After that, you are no longer allowed to file for patent protection for that innovation. So that one-year window is really critical. But of course, a lot of early stage startups, within a year of disclosing their innovation or really what they see as their main product focus and their main differentiators. One year isn't a very long time to go out and raise sufficient funds to actually support the development of an intellectual property strategy. So the one year window is a big reason for why you should start thinking about it early. And additionally, in the world of IP, um, the winner is the first to file, meaning that even if you're developing out an idea and you have the publicity behind it, if someone else files a patent for that idea before you do, none of that matters. They, if, if that patent is granted, then they will be the beneficiary of that technology. So being really strategic in the way that you disclose your innovation and the way that you're marketing things to make sure that you have your ducks in a row when it comes to IP before you expose yourself to potential copycats is very important. Awesome. So yeah, so, really, all in all, get started early. From a fundraising perspective, what we see is a lot of investors don't take a lot of stock in a company's patent value if all they have is a provisional because it is to some extent sort of the bare minimum if they're a technology-focused company and it's sort of the expectation. So as far as differentiating yourself to fundraisers, having a really well-thought-out patent strategy is um, can be very beneficial from an optics perspective beyond all of the associated patent value from that strategy. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and from my fundraising experience, I mean, IP is is a you know a, a primary topic and obviously when startups create uh, and, and build out their data rooms uh, you will you know no doubt be asked by investors to provide any sort of uh, you know kind of IP materials or, or patent materials so um, that kind of moves me into into my next question which you know obviously you've worked with you know or met hundreds of, of different startups and so you can have this really unique knowledge set when it comes to what successful companies do. And then what not so successful companies do when it comes to IP. So, 
you know, kind of where do startups go wrong? And, and you know, not just kind of kicking the can down the road, uh, but, you know, is there any, you know, what other pitfalls uh, have you seen when it comes to, to IP? Absolutely. So one of the most common pitfalls I see is a lack of understanding of what constitutes patent value. Um, this number varies depending on who you ask, and a more conservative estimate is about 95% of granted patents have no value in the sense that they're never monetized, they're never litigated against, and really it's just sort of sort of something for people to say that they've done as far as developing a company. And what's interesting is, is that you know, you as a founder, you know your innovations better than anyone. And obviously you've 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 taken a lot of risks to build out your vision for this. And so in your mind, your technology and your innovations are valuable and they and they have a value. And that can very much be the case, but focusing on the specific components of your technology that when patented can actually create value is very important. So one common pitfall I see is people patenting the wrong things. People patenting because they think that they think that the USPTO will grant their patent and then they'll be good to go. Whereas in whereas the reality is, is a lot of the time the patents that are easier to get through the USPTO are the ones that ultimately have no value. So really the big mistake is not consulting people who have deep padded experience, not just working with the USPTO, but also in your specific technology area. The world of patenting is such that nobody knows the entire patent landscape because each technology is so differentiated and requires so much subject matter expertise. And what this sort of rolls into, you know, in the sense that you should really be consulting padded experts is selecting the right padded counsel. And this is one that I see um, that companies struggle with and will often backfire is a lot of the times the typical flow for when you as a startup approach intellectual property mm-hmm. or a padded lawyer is the idea is, is that they'll sort of hear your ideas and then directly convert that into filings. They'll file, you'll get your patent issued there and then they're happy because they were able to build the hours and you're happy because you have a patent. But ultimately they did it directly contribute to the curation of your patent portfolio and you know did it really help with the strategy behind that. And what I always like to see and what I really think that all all entrepreneurs who are really taking substantial risks and giving up a lot of opportunity costs to, as corny as it sounds, pursue their dream. Um, you know, you you don't want to hamstring yourself by not seeking out the right experts. So what I like to see is for the relationship between a startup and their paddock council to be more of a collaborative approach. And, you know, the paddock council is has deep expertise in the specific technology area of the startup and has seen a lot of patents in that space go through and they know what the market trends are and they, you know, and they understand the developments 
from the USPTO criteria, mm-hmm. and they leverage all of that understanding to work with the founders and say, hey, these are these are what you've identified as your valuable ideas, but given the technology area you're in and given the patent standards for this technology area, maybe we rethink this a little bit and we focus a little bit more here and we de-emphasize this component of it. How can we position this to maximize the return on our dollars spent for building out our patent strategy? So selecting the right patent council is a hugely important decision that early stage startups are faced, especially if they expect their patent portfolio to you know, really be a significant contributor to their eventual enterprise value. You know, it might be difficult for some startups to identify whether they actually have any sort of patented, you know, uh, you know, value, you know, and whether, you know, obviously you could patent, uh, you know, a specific technology, you can patent a process, you know, so if I'm a founder and just saying, hey, I'm looking at my business, what can be patented and what cannot you know, do you have any just, obviously they should be consulting with, with a kind of patent counsel, but do you have just any kind of maybe general thoughts or, or guidance there for, for startup start founder to, to just kind of do a self-evaluation on their own product and services play? Yeah. So that, and that is a difficult question. I think to some extent you can, you can bootstrap your understanding of the patent landscape, but ultimately you'll never know what's really patentable until you talk to experts. And Mm -hmm. another sort of common pitfall that I see a lot for technology startups is they assume that their product can't be patented because it's in a certain space. So the one I hear the most often is for software companies. Oh, well, you can't patent an algorithm. And a lot of this relates back to the Alice decision, which did make it significantly more difficult for um, for filers to secure patent protection for algorithmic-based processes and products. But the reality is, is that some of the most high-value patents in the entire patent world are for those specific products, algorithms and software. And this narrative, to some extent, makes it creates a barrier of entry in people's minds of, oh, well, I'm doing software. There's nothing I can patent here. And the reality is, is if done correctly, most technology areas have patentable subject subject matter within it. And I really can't go too much into the specifics sure. because I'm not a lawyer and I don't really, sure. and I can't speak to self-evaluating. But what I would say is, is that do not self-evaluate and conclude that it's not a possibility. Absolutely. That's, it, that's great advice. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah, I know we have a number of startups that, that you would never think that they have any sort of patent play, but, but they do. And, and kind of just goes to show you that, you know, never close the door on, on exploring that as a potential value creator and driver. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And again, it's sort of, my recommendation falls back to talk to experts, but I really think that that is so, so critical for founders to do. And it's also a difficult thing because as a founder, you've built out this technology and you're the most familiar with it. And to some extent, you know, you're, you're 
logic is, is that, well, how will someone else really be able to weigh into this? They didn't build up the technology, but patent attorneys and consultants have made an entire industry on being able to really recognize areas of patent value for early stage companies and, and for and for large tech companies as well. So I really think that consulting experts with a specific focus on experts who are in your specific technology domain yep. is, is a really key step for any early stage company whose primary focus is on their technological innovations. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for tuning into this episode of New Chip Accelerate. If you want to hear the uncut recording of these interviews, check them out on the New Chip YouTube channel. If you are interested in learning more about how New Chip enables startup founders to build their business, meet other CEOs, and raise their rounds, all while retaining 100% ownership of their companies, check us out at newchip.com. We will see you soon with the next episode of New Chip Accelerate.